This is IVP. This is The Disruptors, a podcast collaboration from InterVarsity Press and CT Creative Studio. Metal tracks never been a fabricator, but like MOK, I've been an agitator. Hosted by me, Esau McCauley. I think everybody's going to like this one. I want to have Jasmine on the podcast because any black woman who exists as authentically herself and in love with Jesus is disruptive in modern society. Existing as her true, free, Christian, black mother self, she is inherently disruptive. Hopefully I'm not mansplaining on the Disruptors podcast. But from what I've heard and seen, there's a tremendous amount of of pressure for black women in particular to fit in certain boxes in the Christian community, either on the left or the right. What does it mean to try to raise a child with the fear of God and a sense of their own identity as black and Christian and carving out your own lane as a black woman of faith isn't easy? They talk about having a brother from a different mother. She seemed like a sister. I feel like if we lived in the same neighborhood, we would be cool. <laughs> I don't want I don't want to shade Mississippi, but I'm about to because I'm from Alabama. It's the one state we get to shade. And I remember one year we got all the way up to 48th in education. And we're like, in your face, Mississippi and Louisiana. <laughs> that sounds about right. <laughs> That's about the level of like discourse around life in the South. It turned into like the relationship podcast. Had I not proposed to my wife, she would probably, I mean, marriage to her was a thing indifferent. I don't think that she had this natural maternal instinct, but I, from, from, from my childhood, I always wanted to be a husband and a father. Oh gosh. So when I was 20, I wrote an entire, I wrote my first book when I was 20 and it was all about how the best way for a 20 year old person to prepare themselves how to be a good wife and how to prepare. I wasn't married. I wasn't married. I, I, I had no boyfriend. I had no prospects, but I, I just knew I was on it. I was on a mission, a mission. The swagger in that is just amazing. <laughs> it's so bad. I, I go back and I read it now. Actually, I, I can't read it because I don't own a copy of it because I'm so humiliated by it, but I go back and I think about it and I'm like, what, who let's, okay. Who was with you but at the you moment? Know. There was nobody who said maybe you should like fall maybe back a little be. bit. Maybe you should just chill and let that first year of marriage sanctify you a little bit yeah. to so, where you realize that you shouldn't be writing. A, so but no. You were telling somebody about how to find somebody. I was. <laughs> before you had somebody. Yup. That's, I mean, yep. that, you know, that's, that's <laughs> one way to go. I mean, I say this, but the entire Catholic priesthood is like celibate and they give people marriage advice all of the time. So that's true. Was this around the like I kiss dating goodbye age of kind of evangelicalism? So right afterwards, I'm a little behind that generation, but um, yeah, it was in that whole, but like the homeschool spin on it of like being a good daughter to your father and like supporting your mom and taking care of the home and all the ways to have a perfect family. So I remember when me and my wife first met, she wasn't like a big fan. I don't. She didn't even ask me if I could. I didn't even ask if I could talk about her on the podcast. But it's too late now. I, I'm sorry, baby. If you listen <laughs> to the podcast, 
Uh, well, she does. So I remember when she sent to me, because I, I came out of the African-American church tradition, and we were miles away from any of this stuff. Yeah. And she gave me this, like, I kiss dating goodbye book. And I'm like, nah, I'm good. <laughs> and that was that was the end. It was also, and no shot. I'm going to get in trouble. I, why, I need to start telling the truth. The other thing that she gave me around that time, because this is like, I don't know, this has been the early 2000s. Where if you're a serious Christian, you got like John Piper. So she gave me this John Piper, not the desiring God one, but like, or the Christian, like the second Christian hedonism, John Piper book. And I feel like those two things came in quick succession. And in both cases, shouts to John Piper, you, you, you know, God bless you. And that's, I just like, that wasn't for me. And I remember like seeing it as a part of, this wider culture around relationship and marriage that just didn't seem true to my experience. Was there a part in a part in your life or a point in your life where some of those ideas began to shift a little bit? Or was that the same framework that you took into the relationship that you have with your husband now? I think my husband um, shifted the relationship more than anything else in that he, I remember we first started dating and he came to me about something that had to do with his ex and he was like, she's really upset. I kind of want to talk to her, but I don't want to disrespect you. Like, what do you think? And I was like, oh, I should just, I'll pray for you about it. And, and you know, I just think that you should have leadership in this and you should just do whatever you think is right. And like, if we're going to do this and I have to trust your leadership. And I finished praying for him and he went, wow, that was really nice. And I said, thank you. And he was like, yeah, I'm really looking forward to getting to know who you are under this perfect Christian girlfriend act. That's going to be fun. Oh, shots fired. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. What do you think he meant by, like, the, what do you think he had in mind? And what if you just he was about just, yourself? Yeah, he was just very much like, I shouldn't probably talk to my ex about this. I think that she's going to be okay. And I think that you're not comfortable with me talking to her, so you should have just said no. And I was like, I mean, I'm not. But I felt like the good Christian, non-jealous girlfriend thing to do was just say yes, like without talking about it or exploring it with him. My focus was so on being the woman who was going to be easy for him and not make him mad and never make him uncomfortable and never make him. And that's, I think people who knew me before Philip, my husband would not have described me as like a super stubborn or headstrong or angry person. Um, and that's hilarious because being married to Philip, I realized that I was all of those things <laughs> and he loved, he loved me anyway. <laughs> Do you think that, um, I think that especially for Christians who are trying to take the scripture seriously, it's it's sometimes difficult to think through how do these texts actually land in a lived experience? And so would you say like part of being married for you was trying to figure out what does it actually mean to become or be a woman of God that isn't limited to tropes and caricatures? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so how do yeah. you, can you speak a little bit about like, I know you talk about that moment where, where there are these other moments in your relationship where you began to understand what that looks like for someone or for you in particular? Yeah. For me in particular, I would just, I would get so mad at Philip. Like nobody on earth can make me as mad as my husband can make me, which I know is a very like common sentiment, but I was able to kind of hold it together with everybody else. But with him, I would just, I would just lose it. I would get so mad. I would snap at him. And in my, in my very limited view of grace, every single time Philip forgave me and every single time he still liked me and every single time that 
our marriage didn't end because I had an outburst was the most humbling experience and was so good for me to learn and to see that our relationship was about growth and sanctification and not about perfection. And it was about working with each other. Whereas before I married Philip, I always kind of saw marriage and wifehood as I have to be the strong pillar of support for this godly man and I can never falter and I can never need anything. Um, and he showed me that it's okay. It's okay to need and that need is mutual. And that's what gets us closer together and gets us to the foot of the cross. You said two things that I wanted to pick up on. That relates to the relationship podcast. Y'all need to pull up a chair. We're going to teach y'all. <laughs> We're not 20 writing books. We, we, we deep in the game. <laughs> so one of the things you said that was interesting was like when you got into a fight and y'all didn't leave. And I said one of the biggest things that changes in a real like committed Christian marriage, and this is, I always make the caveat, this is assuming there isn't any kind of abuse or other things that are different. Right. I'm talking right. about within just like, you know, the life of two people together who are trying to follow the Lord. It's like we stuck together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it's mm-hmm. like there's no win in the argument. It's finding a way to end the argument. Because <laughs> yep. like, I can't go anywhere. What are we going to do? It's just stay bad and sleep on the other side of the bed all tensed up? And so what you're trying to do is it the conversation or at least a disagreement takes on a different tenor when the goal is reconciliation. And when you know the person who I am disagreeing with is really going to be there for me at the end of this dis- disagreement. And there's a sense of this profound unworthiness that, or this, this profound sense of grace when you realize, at least for me, and people want to say this to me. They never say this to my wife. It's like, I can't believe you put up with him. That's people say that all the time about me. <laughs> and it's, it is a real sense of like, I don't deserve this person. And I'm, I'm grateful to God that they're always there. But the other thing that you talked about was, and I feel like you, you touched on it twice, so I feel like I'm going to have to go there. It's like this idea of submission, and you have to you have to be careful because you have an egalitarian on the on the podcast, and I, I don't want to make I don't want the internet yelling at me. But <laughs> what you're talking about is um, this sense in which sometimes the 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 roles in which we are placed, and especially not just the biblical idea of submission, but the way that that submission is encoded in Western American Christian praxis can sometimes be difficult for both the wife and the husband. Because you talked about how Philip said, it's okay to, you know, for you to be an actual pillow of support and something that he needs and not just something who is low maintenance. And so I thought that was interesting. So how did, how did this conversation play out? Was it something where he's like, it's okay for you to fully be yourself? Is that what he said? Yeah, basically. And he was, I think for me and Philip, it was, it's okay for you to figure out who yourself is. Because I didn't know who myself was. I got married. I wasn't too young. I was 24. So this is year, this will be year 16. So we're 15 years in. Happy anniversary, baby. Aww. <laughs> well, no, today's not our anniversary. I'm just saying it's to get out of trouble. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Go ahead. So you're saying you, 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 mar- you married her at 24. Yeah, I was 24. But I had like, I lived at home until I got married. I'd never lived on my own. I'd never gone to a church other than my family's church. I'd never... Just hadn't experienced a lot of life, um, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. I don't want to make a value statement about that. But the way that I experienced life was by getting married and moving out. And the same year that I got married and moved away, my family decided that they were going to move to Zambia. We decided that we were going to move to Minnesota. And so we went from like, I went from living at home with my family and my 
eight siblings to living in Minnesota with my husband and my family thousands of miles away on another continent. Well, I was, I would, I would want to ask you, you don't have to talk about this if you don't feel comfortable, but it seems like you grew up in a church context that encouraged that kind of feminine dynamic that you, so was that difficult for your family to begin to kind of get accustomed to this new you that was developing? It's so funny because I remember when I was um, 18, I had graduated, I graduated early um, I was 16 when I graduated, and so I took two years, and I just kind of worked and worked for my dad. And so my dad was like, hey, maybe you want to get a college degree now. And I was like, I don't know. Like, I really just want to be at home and, like, focus on just learning how to, like, run a home and take care of kids. And, like, this is what I want to do. I don't really want to have a career. And my dad was like, okay, okay, but... I just think that you, maybe someday you're going to want to do master, like get a master's degree. Maybe someday you're going to want to teach. And I was like, I don't think so. I think I'm good. And so we had, we kind of negotiated it and he convinced me that I should at least get an online degree. And then when I graduated, my mom convinced me that I should at least maybe just have a job for a year and see how I liked it. And so they were just kind of like very not pushy about pushing me a little bit um, outside of our church's subcultures ideas of femininity but looking back I can see that they were just very gently like okay this is this is what you think you want now but let's just let's let's see what it's like to have a job as a teacher I've been teaching now for almost a decade because my mom and let's see what it's like to have a college degree and now I've been able to teach and continue learning because of my dad so there's there's little things that they kind of did to move me from that culture <laughs> i know a lot of women or a lot of people who grow up in well it's funny this is not it's because this seems to be something that you internalized not something that your family gave to you because you said your dad and your mom were encouraging you but sometimes i hear the story of women who grow up in this kind of context and when they do get an expansive kind of picture of what's possible part of the deconstruction of that understanding of what it meant to be a woman coincides with the deconstruction of their faith. So how did you keep your Christian faith in the context of this transition? I was broken and I needed, I needed God's grace. I can't imagine. He just brought me to a place of utter brokenness. Like me and my husband, we started dating in March of 2014. We got married in October of 2014 and I had had my first miscarriage by December of 2014. So it was just like life was coming at me so fast and things were changing so fast. And I definitely see that I could have gone through this huge deconstruction of faith. But honestly, I learned so much more about God's grace because I was just at the point of needing him so much and wanting so much to be loved and accepted as I was learning all these new things about myself and experiencing all of these new hard things. I think that I'm... I'm grateful that you felt comfortable to speak about miscarriages because I feel like sometimes, and Tish Harrison Warren wrote something for in our, I mean for Christianity Today about this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's sometimes it's the hidden wound. Uh, me and my wife experienced two miscarriages um, in between our two children, and it's almost like this hidden sadness and that that isn't always articulated or well dealt with in churches. And I can't imagine it was hard enough for us, and when we had two children. Um, it was hard enough for us to deal with it then, but with you, was there support for your church as you went through that? Or was it something, was it something like, once again, that was internalized and taboo that we don't really talk about publicly? I just feel, I felt like people, and not just 
I want to be careful because it's so, if people don't know how to deal with miscarriage because we don't talk about miscarriage. And so a lot of people would say things like, oh, but you're young and you'll be able to have another one. And yeah, this is sad, but why are you still sad? Or yeah, this is hard, but why are you still, because like I had a miscarriage in um, December, but it took me six months to even want to try to get pregnant again, to even like think about talking about getting pregnant again. And so I had a lot of people being like, Hey, just jump back in. Like, I'm sure it'll be okay. Or just like, just it's, it's fine. And I felt like it took me longer to get over it than people were expecting it to take. And I felt like I had to pretend to be okay before I was okay for the sake of other people, because I was starting to make them uncomfortable by continuously bringing up the fact that I had lost a child. Yes. And, and that's what I mean when I talk about Churches don't have the theological resources or the, sometimes we lack the resources of the pastoral care. Now, you you went from um, Houston, and I think at, at some point you're back in Mississippi. And once again, Alabama's not utopia, but Mississippi has a certain reputation. So what has it been like being a black family in Mississippi trying to raise – how many children do you currently have? We have two, two, two. sons. Yes. Yeah, it's been, it's so funny because when we moved from Minneapolis, I was, to bring up that submission thing again, my husband brought it up. He's like, hey, I'm just feeling like we need to move back home. I'm just feeling like we need more support. Our first year of marriage was, some people are like, oh yeah, the first year, everybody said it was going to be really hard, but it was actually really easy and great. And I don't know why people say it's hard. <laughs> that's that's not my experience. Like everybody's why, like, it was hard. Why did a white like, woman yeah. tell you that? Because that's how they say it. They're just like, they're just like, I, just, I know the voice. I, just... I know this <laughs> the person who told you was clearly a white woman who told you. That. It's always just like, oh, we're blissful. I don't understand. Hard. Like we had we had a couple friends in Minneapolis, and we would always be like, they'd be like, how's married life? When we'd be like, it sucks, and they go, oh, we don't relate to that at all. We'd be like, yeah, just kidding. We meant yes. our friend's marriage sucks. Yeah. Um, so we decided to move back to Mississippi to kind of have like a heavy reset and to get around community to go back to my husband's church. And I didn't want to go, but I felt like it was going to be what was best for my husband and what was going to be best for my son. And it was not what was best for me at the time. It is not what I wanted at the time, but it's a sacrifice that I felt that I needed to make. Um, and spoiler alert, it hasn't ended up being like really amazing for me. But the first year, we lived on the same street as my mother-in-law and her two sisters. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> in Pickens, Mississippi, which population 800. Okay. It's uh, not, literally okay. Like a dead end street. I want to say cotton picking Mississippi. But. Yes, <laughs> it, it is. It was. They, have, they still have the big old cotton gin. It's not operational anymore, but the sharecropping was lit in okay. Pickens. That's how you do it. Um, so we had one car. My husband drove it 45 minutes into Jackson every day to go to work. Um, we lived on a dead end street. My house literally backed up to the woods, which backed up to the highway. There you go. Um, and yeah, it was like the picture of isolation and breaking into Mississippi culture is so hard. Now, was this, was this a, like a segregated town where it's like a black part and a white part? Or was it like a black like, used town to on the, uh, yeah. pretty integrated at this point? I mean, it's mostly black people now, but it used to be segregated. Like literally the tracks used to separate the two parts of town. But now like the black people, like my husband's family now lives on the side of the tracks that used to be the white side of town. And there's maybe like three or four white families that still live over there, but it's mostly a black town now. That's my favorite color, but it's subject to change. 
Hey everybody, Richard here, producer of The Disruptors. InterVarsity Press wanted me to let you know that you can go to ivpress.com slash disruptors with an E to learn more about IVP books and get 30% off all titles with free shipping. And now let's go back to the conversation. And so you, at some point, you know, you recovered from writing a book about how to get married before you found someone and you decided Uh that now you want to write um, letters to your son. And I want to make sure I get the title of it right. It keeps disappearing. We can't, I'll start again. You know, so you recovered from writing this book about uh, relationships before you got married, writing this book, Mother to Son, Letters to a Blackboard on Identity and Hope. And so it seems like it, it, it seems like you you had this real sense of something that you wanted to say to your black sons in particular. So and and I'm assuming that this is um, from mother. To, this this is an allusion to uh, mother to son. Life for me hasn't been a crystal stair. So you 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 you're even evoking the Harlem Renaissance in this in Langston Hughes. So what led you down this kind of this conscious path of talking about ex, ex, um, intentionally to your son? about ethnic identity? So I read, um, I guess it was in 2018, I fell in love with this writer named um, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. She wrote Americana. Yes. Um, I love her. I watched all of, I mean, every TED Talk, every interview. You know, I think think, uh, there's a movie coming out? Yes. Starring, um, uh, the Black Panther lady, forgive me. What, mm-hmm. What's her name? Mm-hmm. Um, she was oh. also in uh, um, she was, Us. Well, yeah. What's her name? Uh, what's her? Oh, L- Lapita. Lapita. Oh, yes, Lapita. Sorry, Lapita. Shout out to yeah. Lapita. I know she listens oh, to the podcast. Oh, man. She's, she should. <laughs> so I, I, I think I saw Lapita is saying that she is either producing or she's starring in that movie. But go ahead. So she's like producing or the other girl in Black Panther. I don't remember her last name, Danae something. But. I read, so I read her and I started reading all of her stuff and I got to um, Letters to Iajuile, which is, uh, I think the subtitle is A Feminist Manifesto and it's letters that she wrote to her, I think it's her goddaughter, um, before she was born maybe even about how to be a good feminist, how to be a good woman, how to be a good person. And so I read it and I was really blown away by, I just, if I could just sit down and talk to Amanda for like one time I went to my hair salon in DC and they were doing my hair. She said, what are you reading? And I said, Americana. And she said, Oh my gosh, that's one of my customers. And I almost like fell out of the chair. I was like, Oh, the hands that have touched. So I read this and I loved it. And then I read, um, like literally the next month I read the fire next time by James Baldwin for the first time. Oh my goodness. Yes. Mm -hmm. I read that in high school. Yep. Yep. I read Go Tell on the Mountain in high school, but I hadn't read, I hadn't read this one. It's such a and good title too. I mean, it's, it's like, so oh, man, it's, it's so good. And it's such a hopeful letter to his nephew and it's beautiful and I loved it. And so the idea of, of letters kind of started churning in my head and I read, um, wow, Ta-Nehisi Coates. Between the World and Me. Yes. I read that one. And that one didn't make me feel hopeful. That one made me feel really sad. Um, and I related, really. yeah, yes, absolutely. Um, and it really, it, it's a really meaningful book though, because like my dad grew up around the same time as him in South Central LA. And there's so much of the stories that my dad tells me in the stories that Coates, help, Coates told his son. 
Um, and they just kind of went down two different paths. And it's so interesting to kind of watch, watch that difference. So the idea of like letters and letters to sons and letters to the next generation was kind of turning in my head, just boom, boom, boom. One thing after the other that I was reading. There was a lot going on in America when this reading is that, I mean, our, our current events, yeah. I mean, you said this, um, this is what year, what years are these? This is like 2017, 2018 yeah, so, I started. So like back yeah. end of Obama, beginning of uh, the current president. Yes. Yeah. And I made it, I made it of, through like eight episodes and I have not talked about the president yet. So I feel like I should get a bonus. You should definitely get a bonus. <laughs> I don't think people can make it through like two sentences of conversation oh, no, without talking about Oh, hold on. <laughs> there is an undercurrent now. <laughs> there is an undercurrent. It's called disruptors for a reason. We, we, oh. We're here for the revolution. <laughs> See, look, the editor, every now and then I get this look. There's the guy here who um, edits the podcast, and we, I'm in CC like, studio. We're not doing that. And this one, they go, that. oh, he, I think I just triggered him. <laughs> <laughs> so, it has this, is the stuff that's going on in the culture influencing your desire to write this to your son? Yeah, it was, I wanted to write it for a while, um, but the reading that I was doing helped me to figure out that I wanted to write it in letters. Um, but the thing, the biggest, there's so many things that have happened since Michael Brown back in, what year was that? 2014? I call, I mean, I use the language, well, Michael Brown, my goodness, I'm not, I'm not going to do a timeline. But what I, what I say is, historically, you know about the rare summer where African-Americans were coming back from the war and there was the increase in lynchings and riots to keep black people in, in place. Mm-hmm. And oh man, I, I, I've considered like the back end of Obama's presidency, even though it was not on a on a scope um, of what happened um, during the first red summer, was like our second red summer, in the sense of there was like this this real sense I felt like emotionally that the country was pushing back on like black people, and it felt like for a moment that we were under siege. And so people have different events that they put on that timeline that that are catalytic. But everyone has something sometime between 2014 and 2017. There's one. It's a cumulative effect. And and those things didn't necessarily create. I mean, those weren't new. I think it's where I would say technology caught up with black claims. And so there was always black anecdotes about what was happening that we we shared amongst one another. But to see those things played out live on video because now everybody has a phone and everything is captured, yeah. kind of it. I think it triggered it triggered in black people their own memories of what they had experienced and the, what their family had experienced. And so each individual event created a cascade of memories that that reverberated through the black experience. And so people have different ones so that, that they remember, but we all remember in that in, in some sense being being triggered at some point between that time period. So I want to see if that I want to see if that was in the background. But you were saying something about Michael Brown? Yeah, that that was the first thing that caught my attention. And I when it happened, I was just very like, okay guys, let's not jump the gun. Like, let's kind of just see what, see what happened. Let, let, and I was very, very, very hesitant to paint any kind of person in law enforcement ever as not having the exact correct justification for shooting an unarmed black man. That was just where I was. That's what made me feel safe. And that's just what I wanted to hold on to. 
Um, and as time progressed, the one that kind of broke through for me was the in the neighborhood that we lived in, in Minneapolis, Philando Castile got shot two days, few days after I gave birth to my son. And it wasn't as easy for me to believe the best immediately. And I thought, this is too close. Like, this is too real. That's the same. Like, my husband drives on that street all the time. My husband's literally out running errands when I heard about it. And I have a black, I like looked at my son and I said, I have, I have a black son. And so now this is, this is more personal for me than it ever has been. And different things create that personalness for different people. But the thing that kind of woke me up and alarmed me enough to say, this is, this is serious. This is something that we need to talk to, talk about, um, was the birth of my son. It took that long for me to. Where was Philip? Was he ahead of you? Was he in the same place? How was he? Was he was definitely ahead of me. Definitely ahead of me. And he, my husband, actually, it's so funny. Like one of our major triggering conversations that we have in marriage counseling is Philip is not allowed to say just be reasonable because <laughs> I will hulk out to them. Don't tell me to be reasonable, okay? Or I will get unreasonable really quick. And so his thing is always like, we have to be reasonable. We have to stop. We have to think we have to, we, we, we have to be logical. We can't just pick up a picket and go march in the streets. Um, we have to actually think first, like what, what, what's going on. Um, but he was already at that place where he's like, okay, I've been, I've been reasonable. I've stopped. I thought, um, the militarization of the police in America is a problem. And he was okay saying that before I was. Yeah, I think I think that um, each individual event, and I think this is kind of the emotional thing that's difficult for at least me as an African American. Sometimes this this may seem like weird. Sometimes you want every story to be its worst, the worst version of itself, so that you then feel justified in like this this deeply held belief oh, that there gosh, is a yes. problem. But yeah. every story isn't, and, and, and actually, and I and I got to this point where it's like, praise God, yeah. that like every story isn't. And so I don't like you. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a, I wish I'm, I'm speaking to Philip, even though he was in here. I, I'm glad that I had people who like say to me, Esau, you need to make sure that um, everything that you say is at least considered. And so I try not to assume the worst because let me tell you something. And this is what I say to people. When I was in when the neighborhood I grew up in and somebody pulled up on me, I didn't call my cousin. I called the police. Because I want the police to come and help me. And so I want to believe, and I do believe, that not all police are, you know, hunting black people. But I, but there is a problem in, in trying to, to live in that nuance makes me feel oftentimes pulled between two worlds. Because for the culture, I want everything to be the worst that it could possibly be, so which just sounds weird, so we can then change it. But also want to be able to say people deserve... Um, each individual act deserves its own consideration. And, 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 and the tricky part is then you turn into a detective, right? I'm not a detective. Yeah, <laughs> so I'm, yeah. You know, I'm trying to follow police reports. At some point, I was like, you know what? This whole thing of adjudicating each case, which is what we were doing on the internet for like a year and a half, was emotionally and spiritually exhausting, and it has to be a better way. I, look, amen. <laughs> Related so much of what you just said, and that that tension of I really just want this story to be as powerful as it possibly can be, so that people can see 
my fear or see my hurt or see fill in the blank. But then also, I also want to be just in my estimation of exactly what's going on. And I can't know what exactly was going on because I wasn't there. Even if there is a cell phone turned on, I don't know when the cell phone got turned on. I don't know what happened after the cell phone got turned on. I don't know. You know, there's so, there's so much stuff that we don't know. And I think that we're all so tempted on all sides, which I hate saying all sides because that's just, it's, a, it's, it's, it's way for us not to do the emotional work. But so, but, yeah. at so, but at a certain point, you decided um, that um, this is something that you wanted to write, and you said these events were catalyzing to you. I remember one that was like, it's still stuck in my brain. The one time where I lost all reason. It sounds weird. Um, was It was the one in McKinney, Texas. Oh, yes. And they handcuffed that girl, that black girl. I think she had nothing on but like a bikini. She was like 13, 14, 15 years old. He and like he, rolled on the ground. On, and oh, like, yeah. I was like, yeah. Yeah. that was the one time where I would have said, I would, if, if I was that, if that was my daughter, I would have died that day. My life would, there was, and, and so, and I don't just have daughters. I have, I have daughters and sons. And I, and I, and I think about this transition of my children from being cute to being dangerous. Yep. Oh, I think about that all the time. And so right now I have these little, you know, young black boys with, you know, curly hair and, you know, they smile and my five-year-old is super charming and my 11-year-old is super articulate. And, you know, they're these, they're these good black boys, but at a certain point their voices go to change and then they go from cute to being dangerous. Is that the kind of stuff you get to and let us to a black boy on identity and hope? What do you, what, what do you want to say to your son in this, in this book? Yeah, I think about that all the time. And I'm so I'm five eight. My husband is six six, and my three year old is the size of a four and a half year old. And every time somebody says, "Oh my goodness, he looks so much older than he is. He's so huge," I'm a little hurt because I am so afraid of him growing up and people seeing him as big and dangerous instead of just a kid. He's emotional. He's effusive. He loves to talk to little girls. He's hilarious. He's, I mean, I love my son so much. And I hate to think that people are going to look at him and not see all of the beautiful things that I see in him, um, but are going to just see the color of his skin and the size of his stature. And so one of the major things that I wanted to do with this book was to talk to him like the beautiful black boy that he is, talk to him in a way that he may not be talked to by other people throughout his life to just remind him that I, when I think about it, I'm the first experience that my son is going to have of love. God's love is way bigger than mine. God's love is vaster and deeper, fuller than mine. But my love is the first love that he's actually going to be able to grasp onto and understand. And I want to create a space for him where he knows beyond the shadow of a doubt that his mother loves him and wants what's best for him. And I want to create a space for him where he can hope that the church feels the same way about him that I do. Yeah, it was interesting. You talked about this your, this beautiful black boy. I don't know if this is something that all parents do, but you, do you know the doll test? The one that they performed during, um, in, the, in the context of Brown versus Board of Education. Oh, yeah. I'm so paranoid about this that I'm running basically a perpetual doll test on my daughters. <laughs> in the sense where I'll ask them, not in like, you know, I'm not, doing a psychological survey but i want them to know that their black that their skin is beautiful and so i'll ask them i say you know like 
you know, what do you think about being brown? Or what do you think about, like, what do you think of these two dogs? I don't do it in the same way, but I'm constantly, me and my, my three-year-old daughter, actually I do it with all my kids, but it, the, the younger ones like it the best. Well, I say, I'm going to describe somebody, and you're going to have to guess who I'm describing. And I'll say, she's three, she has curly hair, pretty brown skin. And she gets, the more adjectives you put in there, the more she gets excited because she's going to go, it's me, it's me, it's me. But what I try to do is every time I, I, I do that description, I mention her skin in the context of her beauty so that she links those two things together. Because I don't, I know that, it, or, and her hair, because I know at a certain point that might not be the case. And so it, it, I think that's part of the work that, that black parents do is that we're trying to like preemptively encode a sense of self in our children before the, the world tries to take those things away. So do, how, so what about if, I mean, me, you, and ta could talk about how black is beautiful. What is distinctively Christian about what you try to say to your son or your son's? Well, two things. The first, black is beautiful because God made it that way. Um, and secondly, the book is for my sons, but it's also for the church. I want people to be able to read this book and to get a peek behind the scenes of what a black mother's thoughts, hopes, and dreams are for her son with the hope that we can see that this is the kind of love and acceptance that we're offered in Christ and the kind of love and burden carrying that we are called to in Christ. And so I have a lot of people have asked me like, oh, if I don't have a black child, can I read this book? If I'm, if I'm not black, can I read this book? If And the book is for anybody who cares about little black boys and girls and wants to create a safe environment for them to love and grow and learn and to see their unique beauty. I would say this, like black Christians in majority white spaces have been engaging in the work of translation for generations. Mm-hmm. When we read when we read books where the analogies aren't located in our communities, the stories and applications aren't directly written to us, and we have the intellectual imagination to be able to say, I can't this isn't my direct experience, but here's how this can speak to me. And so what I want to say is that like this idea that something has to be marketed to you in order for you to buy it is a manifestation of privilege. And, and sometimes you just need to, because people ask me all of the time, what do black people think about this? And what do black people think about that? I said, listen, if you ask me this in a, in a largely white space, then I'm engaging in the process of translation. If you want to actually hear what black people, how they talk, you need to go into a majority black setting and be a listener. And so this book is an opportunity. I, I, I learned this when I was, I used to be a stay at home dad when we was, when we were in um, Japan for about eight months. And I realized that, um, at first, it was like me and like it was in the military, military base, like me and seven or eight women. And at first, the women made some like accommodations to the fact that I was there. But then, after like a week or two, like I became one of the girls. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So the, the filter in the conversation just came off, and I just learned stuff I didn't. I was not ready for, but I was, <laughs> I was in the mix. And I said, oh, yeah. this is how women talk when their husbands aren't around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I think that's what it is. And so this book is an opportunity for people to really listen in on what is it like to attempt to raise a black Christian child. Mm-hmm. So why did you choose um, uh, Mother to Son? Why? Did, why? I mean, I, I, we talked about the Langston Hughes, but what motivated you to use that as kind of the illusion that you're that you're that you're trying to evoke? I. 
love Langston Hughes. I like I love the Harlem Renaissance. I'm, so I'm an English teacher, and I find an excuse every year to bring up the Harlem Renaissance. Um, I teach English and history. This year, I'm teaching medieval history. I don't know how I'm going to bring up the Harlem Renaissance, but it's going to happen. Um, I love Langston Hughes' poetry. I love just the huge explosion of art and literature and everything that was happening around that time. And so if I was going to write a book of letters to my son, I wanted to hearken back to a heyday of black expression. Um, and I could not think of a better way than to choose the title of a Langston Hughes poem, which is about a mother talking to her son and telling him life for me ain't been no crystal stair. Yeah. In I'm spite, and in spite of that fact, she's still climbing. I'm, I got it. I got it in front of me. <laughs> Well, son, I'll tell you, life for me hasn't been on Christmas. We have to memorize this. So, I, you uh, know, this is our, you, you, you caught me. So what about, um, are there elements of the poem that come up in the book? There are. There's So there's a whole um, chapter where I just talk about Langston Hughes poetry in general because, uh, like, my second-born son's name is Langston. There you go. Um, I'm just very, <laughs> I'm very invested in For Langston the culture. Hughes. Yeah, for the culture. Um, it's actually, so his first name's Ezra, he's named after Ezra Jack Keats, who wrote Snowy Day, um, and Langston Hughes. And so the whole chapter is just kind of an exploration of Langston and everything that I love about Langston. What I adore about Langston Hughes is that he can, he can make you laugh and smile in one poem and make you just so uplifted about being black and being beautiful that poem where he's talking about all the different color women in the juke joint and like the pecan skin and the caramel skin and the oh my god it's just it's just like so lively and beautiful and you're excited and then the next moment he is writing a poem about a lynching and your heart is broken there's a book about the hall of renaissance that i have in the back i'm not gonna put it on the internet because y'all are not about to steal this but there's a book. There's a book that I got in the back of my head about the Harlem Renaissance because you you speak you speak about language here. So do you think it's important? And I'm only going to ask you a few more questions. Do you think it's important to teach our kids about Black culture as a part of their their formation? Absolutely. So what kind, what are some of the stuff that you all do in your house? Since my son's name is Langston, for at his baby shower, uh, several people brought me children's books where people had made illustrations to Langston Hughes poems. And so my boys love to read them because they are pictures of little black babies, pictures of little black boys. And I was actually laughing the other day because my, um, there's a song, I think it's called Song for a, a Dark Baby, but it's just a, it's a lullaby, a lullaby for a dark baby. And so my son, Wynn, picked it up the other day and he was like, oh, mama, can you read this to me? And I was like, oh, you read it to me. And it's so funny. He sits down, he opens it and he goes, my precious baby and i was like is that how i say it <laughs> your kids will tell you the truth about yourself my daughter came for me the other day it's like hey I'm, I'm daddy i talk about jesus all the time i got a podcast that's all i do, that's all I do. my precious <laughs> she did, baby she did this let me tell you how this how, this how merciless she is she said i got a podcast i was in the new york times <laughs> I was like, wow, was I really flexing that hard? That is me. That is me with my dad all day. I'm really close to my dad. Yeah. And so every time he preaches a sermon, I'm like, dad, 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 who am I? Who am I? Who am I? Who am I? <laughs> so what, what, is it, what is it that you think um, gives you hope? Because you, you talked about identity and hope. What hope do you want to leave with 
um, your son. And I think it's really interesting that you chose the language of hope because in my book, the subtitle is Black, sorry, African-American. Well, I don't even know what the subtitle of the book is. I'll say it again. You talked about hope, and it's interesting because my book has hope um, as part of the subtitle too. And I talk about biblical interpretation as an exercise in hope. And I feel like in particular, we're going through a season in the life of black Christians where hope is in short supply. Was that, was that the reason why you chose hope? And what kind of hope do you want to impart? One of the things that I love about Lakes and Hughes is that no matter what poem you're reading of his, whether it's one of those upbeat ones or whether it's Song for a Dark Girl and we're talking about uh, a lynching, he still wrote with so much hope. Like, what my favorite Langston Hughes poem, Song for a Dark Girl, the last words of this poem about a lynching are, love is a naked shadow on a gnarled and naked tree. And every time I read that, I just get chills because I don't know what Langston's standing before God was, but whenever I read it, I always think of, even in the very worst, down and out, terrible parts of our history, we as a culture, as a culture of Black people, have been able to grasp onto hope and survive and to thrive and to not be, just not to give up. And I think that that comes a lot from our church tradition. Um, and I think that that comes a lot from just the grace of God. And so I want to offer my son a picture of hope that is rooted in the gospel of Christ Jesus, which no matter how bad things get, as a black man in America, and no matter how good, our hope is ultimately in Christ and ultimately in the fact that he put us in this skin on purpose for his glory and has vested it with so much beauty. And for every person that doesn't care about him or sees him and sees a criminal or sees him and thinks, fill in the blank, I want my son to be a man who is able to find and seek out those people that see the beauty that he, that he has in the way that God made him. People ask me all the time, have you had to talk with your son? And they're not talking about, like, the relationship talk. They're talking about, like, the the police talk to, to cure your black body in these physical spaces. I don't tell that story very often or what it's like to parent like that very often because that's I, I'm not really, I don't believe in show trauma or, 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 or trauma just for effect. Um, but this book comes from a particular place. It is, the, it is the concern of a black mother to communicate to her children their worth. And of course, we all believe that our children are image bearers and that our children um, are cherished by God. But there's a particular stress that comes upon mothers of color, in particular black women, who are trying to say, I know all the things they're going to say about you. And what I want is I want to inoculate you against the lies of the culture to grow up with what she considers kind of an unnuanced version of Christianity and to be zealous. And what does it mean to mature in the faith but maintain the core essentials as to, of, of what you believe? And that story is not as sexy as other stories because we love the salvation story. We don't love the maturity story or the nuanced story. I was lost, then I was found, now I'm lost again. It's, it's these dramatic swings. But I was a Christian, and now I still believe, and I still believe much of some of the, the essential principles 
of what I was taught, but I, I, I expressed that faith in, in, a, in a much different way. I think it's a story that is not often heard. Jasmine didn't go from a conservative upbringing to becoming some kind of deconstructive, progressive secularist. She went from a very conservative background in her own words to something that was equally within the great tradition, but just a different way. I can give up now, I keep going, settle down, not ever knowing, won't let my history bury me, cause I ain't doing this just for me. And we think that making it your own always means that I abandon these traditional structures. All of us have to make the faith our own, but maturity doesn't mean deconstruction. Those things aren't necessarily equated with one another. This podcast has had people at different stages in their lives and their careers had that moment. Oh my goodness, something has to change. To be a black Christian in this moment and to have it hit you. Oh, the scope of this problem as it relates to black people and justice in this country is much bigger than I thought it was. And what am I going to do about it? Thank you for listening to The Disruptors. We will be grateful if you would subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. You can follow me at Esau McCauley, and you can check out the best and most disruptive offerings from InterVarsity Press authors at IVPress.com. We out. <laughs>